This is the JGI podcast, where we talk to members of the University of Bristol's data science research community, brought to you by the Gene Golding Institute. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the JGI podcast. My name is Hugh Day. I'm a data scientist here at the Gene Golding Institute. Um, we started this podcast uh, to help showcase the variety of data science research that happens here at the University of Bristol. I'm joined by Leo Gorman. Very excited to be here. Also a recent JGI data scientist starter. And uh, today we're lucky enough to have Nina DeCaro on the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself, Nina? Hi, my name is Nina and I'm a researcher at the University of Bristol in the psychology department. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and in particular for being our first guest. Uh, it's fantastic to have you on here. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit about how you got into data science, your sort of career path to where you, you ended up now? OK, yeah, sure. Uh, it's long and winding and yeah, <laughs> long <laughs> and winding. Um, so I, I originally did a maths degree when I, I left school and came to university and I did that at Cardiff University, mm -hmm. so not too far away. Um, I was from Kent originally. I think I just wanted to move as far away as, as was reasonably possible with a within like a one day train journey uh, from Kent. So Cardiff looked good and uh, did maths there for four years. And then afterwards, I kind of I wasn't that interested in going into maths. I wanted to work with people and I'd done like a lot of work with um, with people and disabled children in the past. So I thought doing social work would would make more sense for me. So I retrained. Um, through a programme called Frontline to do a social work degree. So I was qualified uh, to work in child protection. I did that for two years in London. I really enjoyed working in social work. I loved working with people. It was amazing and I learned so much doing it. But I found it quite frustrating. I found a lot of the time I felt like there was bigger solutions to some of the problems that yeah. I was seeing quite often that could probably be solved by a bit of data and maybe using information more carefully or in a better way. And so I thought, actually, the way to make more of an impact might be to work on this from like a more technical perspective. So I started looking for PhDs that were involving a kind of a social work aspect, but also a data aspect, because that was part of my maths degree that I really, really loved. Sure, yeah. Oh, how did you find like the transition from going from like having done a maths undergraduate degree to social work? That seems like quite a big jump. Was that... Was that strange yeah. for you? Did you find that you brought something to the table that others didn't have or, or, or what, what what kind of experiences did you have? It was weird, partly because I'd never had to write an essay before. So doing my master's in social work involved referencing. No one had ever taught me how to reference right. anything. Yeah, yeah. I'd never read a maths paper in my life yeah. because you just didn't need to. Sure. Um, so that was weird to try and work out how to write essays for the first time. And yeah, so that was yeah, that's tricky. The nice part about it, I suppose, was that some of the research method stuff that was a lot of statistics, correlation matrices and things like that, I wasn't terrified of, which was a nice place to be. It's, not, it's the one good thing about doing maths degree, I think, is that you're not scared of maths for the rest of your life. And it, you, you can you feel like you can approach most things if you if you work at it. So that's what having that background was useful for, I suppose. Um, and actually, surprisingly, a lot of social work is about um, family dynamic systems, which mm kind of cool to think about from a maths perspective like graph theory type stuff and oh, really dynamical systems dynamic systems yeah um yeah and like they um a lot of social work theory and especially family therapy theory which is what my course was kind of embedded in was a family therapy perspective so looking at the whole 
network of people and how they interact with one another. A lot of that came from cybernetics, which is originally a scientific kind of mathematical discipline. And someone brought the theories over from that kind of cybernetics background into family therapies. So it actually has a weirdly specific link that I wasn't expecting before I started. That was cool. That's really interesting. I guess that's why we sort of started to have some of these chats. So thanks for that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD project then after? Yeah, so I came to Bristol to do my PhD. Um, I saw it was advertised. It was one of those projects that's advertised by um, like a doctoral training partnership rather than one that I'd proposed. And it was with the GW4 Biomed um, DTP. It was based in the medical school in the integrative epidemiology unit that's based there. And it was all about linking Twitter data in the ALSPAC cohort study. So what they wanted to do was see if A, participants in ALSPAC would agree to link their Twitter data and what conditions they would agree to do that under. So what kind of privacy conditions they had, in what situations would they agree to researchers using their Twitter data. It was building the framework to actually link that data, so writing software that would collect it and link it within the data safe haven for the ALSPAC participants. And then also, what can we do with that data afterwards? So what kind of things can we find out about, in particular for my project, how mental health and well-being changes over time based on how we're using social media? And can we use that to do things like see how populations are responding to big events or um, is it useful for individual mental health monitoring? Those sorts of questions. Wow, that's super interesting. And I imagine a lot of um, a lot of your time at the start of the project was you were thinking about this end goal of what you can do with this data. But I imagine the process of actually agreeing, getting participants to agree to share it, looking at exactly what the mechanisms are, what that data would look like when it was linked, trying to get into this safe haven. I can't imagine the amount of work that that must have taken. Can you delve yeah. into that a little bit? Yeah, that took a lot of time of my, I probably like halfway through my PhD is when we started thinking we'd have some data. As with all of these sorts of projects, like it takes a lot more time than you originally planned for to actually get your hands on some data from the whole data collection process. Um, and obviously it wasn't just me working on this, it's a whole team of us. So um, the PIs for this project are Claire Howarth and Oliver Davis. Um, and Claire is a professor in psychology and Oliver is an associate professor in medical school. And so they were the PIs for this project leading on the whole data collection um, part. And we also had a software engineer working with us who was Al Tanner and he was building the um, software to do the data linkage. Um, I was doing some of the data analysis on the focus groups for the privacy things that participants um, said that they most cared about, which was they wanted data to be anonymized before researchers used it. And we also had Valeria Maggio who was um, a data science uh, postdoc at the time working on some of those methods as well so yeah it was a big team effort it took a lot of effort and time to get it all through but we did eventually and the Twitter data is now in use which is really exciting. That's awesome do you know about um, like the what stuff people are doing with it now or do you or kind of how how did you leave it once you finished your PhD? Well I'm still working on it now so it's one of my ongoing projects is working on the Twitter data and Excellent. We just finished um, drafting a, a data note, which is going to be describing the data set, how people can use it, um, essentially how it can be used in future research, and that will be hopefully published in the next within next year. So after that, I expect we'll get more people 
from kind of externally to the university looking to use it and hopefully answer some interesting questions with it. That's fantastic. And just That's to be clear for people who might be interested in using data like this uh, that you've published in this data note, would this be ALSPAC data actually linked to some Twitter records then that the researchers could look at? Yeah, so um, for anyone who doesn't know, I, well, I should probably say to begin with, ALSPAC is a cohort study. So there's about originally 12,000 or so um, people or pregnancies that were identified in 1991-1992 in the Bristol area. And those, the, um, the children that were born of those pregnancies have been followed for the last essentially uh, 30 something years. So the children are no longer children, they're 30 something year olds and data collection has been done on them all the way through their lives and usually every year there's a questionnaire about them that goes out and that data is available to researchers to apply to use. So most researchers um, who want to use this kind of data have to make a request to ALSPAC and it gets considered by a panel. Sometimes it gets considered by some participants as well and they decide whether or not to approve research um, studies that they want to use their data. So the Twitter data would be very much like that. You'd apply to use it probably alongside some ALSPAC data. So you might want to look at answers to their mental health surveys over time, which is some of the work we're doing. So we have answers to their wellbeing surveys uh, for a few years, and we can link that with the Twitter data from the same period of time. Awesome. That sounds that sounds really cool. It sounds like there could be it's quite a sort of ethical quagmire to sort of uh, navigate throughout this course. So would you be able to tell us a bit about how you sort of engaged and, and confronted the sort of ethical side of, of your work? Yeah, sure. So I started off working on the ethics of it straight away, really, because I was the one analysing the focus group data from when we talked to participants about privacy controls around their data. And so from that point onwards, I was really interested in, in how we thought about ethics around digital phenotyping data, which is what you would call this kind of data. Um, it's a phenotype collected of people's digital lives and their digital footprints. Originally, um, I just found it really interesting. And then I started to do a, a literature review, which was about all the different ways people have collected Twitter data before and how they've studied it. And I was really quite disappointed, I suppose, in the, in the quality of ethical consideration that happens in general in this research area. And I was really, I've, I felt quite strongly that people who are data scientists had a bit of a get out jail free card with ethics. They kind of just seem to go, well, it's all hypothetical and I'm a data scientist and therefore I don't have to think about ethics, that's someone else's problem even though the things that they were doing were things like creating mental health models from Twitter data that could then be applied to any open source data. And there are massive implications from doing that kind of work and publishing it. And I didn't think it was fair that data scientists just got to say, oh, well, I'm a data scientist, so it doesn't apply to me. I don't have to do ethics. Um, and actually, that should be part of all of our roles as data scientists. So uh, one of the ways I dealt with that was with Natalie, who was then Thelby, now Zelenka, uh, who's based at, I think, UCL now. She's at UCL. Um, we set up something called Data Ethics Club, which is now a JGI kind of data discussion group, I suppose, slash journal club, not strictly a journal club, um, which Hugh co-organises also. And we talk about fortnightly about data ethics issues and trying to upskill data scientists to be more ethically aware, I suppose. 
Yeah, it's it's been an awesome project, and uh, yeah, obviously I'm here asking you slightly leading questions about a project that I've been involved with for a bit as well. Um, but yeah, um, and uh, I'm whilst I was attending the Data Ethics Club, I also became a bit more aware of the Data Hazards project that yourself and Natalie started. Um, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, that as well? Yeah, so Data Hazards is essentially. Um, it was our way of trying to create a shortcut toolkit for people who are interested in data and who use data to think about ethics a lot earlier. So instead of aggregating kind of what you might call ethical debt in the same way, if you don't test your code properly, you're creating technical debt, you're creating a problem that someone later on is going to have to fix and it's going to be a much bigger problem because you could have just solved it a long time ago. Ethical debt has a similar idea in that the longer it takes you to think about ethics in a project, by the time you get to the end product that you've made, you probably could have done so much more to improve the ethics of a project much earlier on. But the people who are in control of that project early on are data scientists, generally, not people who are putting products out. Um, and so how do you help data scientists to think about that at a much earlier stage, maybe a really conceptual stage as well, when most people might not even have ethics committees involved? And what does that look like and how do you make it accessible to people who aren't trained in ethics? We aren't sociologists. Um, that's someone else's field, quite rightly. But at the same time, we need to have that awareness in order to be able to do better data science from the get go. So the Data Hazards Project is essentially a, a list of labels that are a bit like chemical hazard labels. So the way you might have a chemical hazard label on a bleach that says, you know, this is bleach, it's quite dangerous, you shouldn't probably put it in your eyes, that's a bad idea, it will hurt you. But it's also super useful, so you should use some gloves if you are going to use it. It's doing the same kind of stuff with data and saying, well, if you're going to use this technique or if you're going to do something that's going to result in, for example, a black box algorithm that's very difficult to understand and difficult to understand is one of these labels, that's fine, you can do that, there's no problem, but you really need to think about what the consequences of that are. What protective measures should you be putting in place if you're going to make that kind of data science tool? Have you thought about that at this stage? Um, and is there something you can do to address that now rather than leaving it for someone to address in five years time when they try and sell it to the public? So yeah, that is currently the Data Hazards project. Awesome. Really interesting. So um, how how do you imagine some researchers using some of these labels, for example, is it more to promote discussion or say when a paper is published, do you imagine people slapping these labels onto uh, onto their paper to kind of say that there might be some ethical qualms with it? And how would you balance the tension where people want to promote what they're doing, but also uh, want, to, want to be conscious of what the impact might be. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big problem because asking people to do ethics suddenly means admitting that there are flaws with your work that you didn't have to admit mm -hmm. before, which is a challenge. Um, and not even necessarily flaws, just maybe oversights. Uh, so the ways we, we imagine people using them, the way people have used them so far, is there's a range of, of options. You can do a self-assessment. You can use them to look at your own research and just think, oh, yeah, hmm, I could probably do something about, you know, the fact that I'm using a data set that I know is biased and I could do something to indicate that there's likely to be bias in this data set. Maybe I could be clear about that when I communicate about it, for example. The other way that we do it is we run data hazards workshops, which is when we get people to present their projects to an audience who are people that are interested in data, but not necessarily experts in your subject area. 
and those audience members essentially discuss the project in front of you and give you feedback through their discussion about the kinds of ethical things they might be concerned about as almost like consumers of this tool or people who are interested in it. That's kind of method was based on something from my social work training, which was a model called the reflective team. And it was where it was a way of providing a therapeutic intervention to families where people who care about the family and who are involved in their lives would discuss their worries about the family, the things they're worried about that are going on in front of the family. And the family would have to listen to that discussion as an observer rather than being part of it and defending themselves and saying, oh, no, no, that's not a problem. And just listen to the people who care about them discussing why they're worried and it has a really big impact because you're listening as almost as an outsider to the concerns that other people have it makes it a bit less confrontational as well so we use a, a kind of version of that technique um, to run these workshops where people who are doing the projects can listen to people discussing their projects and yeah get some input on what people might be concerned about and use that to make changes um, and people have put them on their projects. So like both Natalie and I, who co-lead the project, have used it in our theses. Uh, a few other people have used it um, for thesis projects and for papers and presentations, just to make people aware that there are ethical risks that involve that are involved with the kind of data science that they're doing. So, yeah. Awesome. And whereabouts have you uh, been able, you said you've run some of these workshops with, uh, with people kind of volunteering their own work. Whereabouts have you sort of uh, run these um, like what events and stuff so at the moment we've mostly run them well a variety of places actually so we've done a few University of Bristol based events um, and that was partly when we were doing this as a research project to see does actually getting people to discuss ethics make them care more about ethics and care more about changing their research um, and does it help people so we ran those at a few JGI events for example um, the open um, sorry, I've forgotten what it was called. There was a, oh, at the JGI showcase event we ran one last year, yep. and we've run one some with some companies as well. So doing it for, internally for um, companies that were interested to learn more about it and if they could use it in their own work. That's awesome. Uh, and I guess just kind of uh, to sort of wrap up, uh, we we is there anything else that that you're working on at the moment that you'd like our listeners to sort of know about? Um. um Stuff that I'm working on at the moment is um, I'm doing some cool work with uh, Claire Howarth in psychology about parenting, which we're working on. I'm continuing to do the um, Twitter data and I'm working on a project called Mood Music, which is about trying to see if we can use Spotify data. So our music listening data as a digital phenotype to see if our mood and well-being changes over time. So, yeah, stay awesome. tuned. <laughs> and so you're so you're now doing a postdoc here. Right? I am. Yeah. So I'm a postdoc. I'm. Uh, officially a research associate in mental health data science in the school of psychology that's fantastic Amazing. Um, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well well thank you so much for for being on the podcast uh, we've really enjoyed uh, listening and, and learning a bit about your sort of journey into data science and, and what it is you do um, but I guess that wraps up uh, so thanks from from me and Leo um, and of course from Nina and thank you for um, having me